We are the first generation to be continually immersed in what everybody else is doing that we're not. It's pretty tough like to live in the constant stew of the, your own opportunity costs. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Alexandra Samuel. Alexandra is an authority on remote work in the digital workplace, a speaker and a data journalist. She is the co-author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work, Wherever You Are, and the author of the Work Smarter series of books published by HBR Press. You can find more on her work at alexandrasamuel.com and on Twitter at, at AWSamuel. In this episode, she shares insights on resetting for remote work, coder evangelism, tool workflows, tool choice, shifting emotions, and combining technology and mindfulness. Keep listening to learn from Alexandra's fantastic insights. Alexandra, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I think it's a pretty omnipresent issue with overload today. And, you know, the shift to hybrid has played an important role in that. So I'd love to get your insights in an organizational context, people working all over the place. How do organizations set up the structures or processes or whatever it is that enables, gives people the space where they can thrive or to at least you know do well in this world of overload? Absolutely. I, you know, and I hear from so many people who have really struggled with with overload since that kind of overnight shift to remote work at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, it's it's been a real kind of flashback for me because I started working remotely before it was even really a known thing in in mid-1998. I moved to Vancouver and I started working for a company in Toronto and it was a super weird thing to do. And I like I didn't go completely crazy, but I did drive myself into a pretty intense depression because I was so isolated. I was working all the time to try and like notionally keep up with these folks in Toronto who, of course, were waking up three hours earlier than me. Um, and I think that some version of that has, has really been what a lot of people have gone through over the pandemic. The sense that like you're supposed to be at your desk by 9 a.m., but if you don't get 
at your desk until 9 a.m. You're never going to have a chance to answer your emails because you're going to be on calls all day from 9 until 5 and, you know, often booked into multiple calls in the same window. And then people are slacking you at the same time and you're getting emails at the same time and you're supposed to do these deliverables for your clients. And so then 5 o'clock comes around. And if you're lucky, your meetings end at 5 and then your workday begins. And it sucks. It's totally exhausting. Not to mention the fact that it's incredibly, you know, depressing and isolating because if you are living that pace at home, you're not seeing other humans. And, you know, for good or bad, you know, we are wired to be around other human beings and get most of us pretty cranky when we don't see them. So, you know, it it really is up to organizations, I think, to reset expectations and norms and to, you know, first and foremost, reduce the volume of meetings and the normalization of nine to five video calls that has had this effect of pushing so much of our work into after hours. And, you know, really that comes down to making a a mental shift we should have made at the beginning of the pandemic or arguably 20 years before the pandemic when we discovered the miracle of email and the miracle of, of texting, document collaboration. I mean, all of these tools have made meanings far less necessary because we do have other ways of working together. But we are so used to working like it's 1964 and, uh, you know, the only way to get things done is by putting people in a room together that we never really stop to, to look and ask, you know, does this need, does this conversation need to be a meeting or can I just send you a Google Doc and get your comments? And, you know, the pandemic should have been the moment to reflect on that. But I think when everything else turned upside down, Keeping our cadence of meetings was one way to kind of preserve normalcy. And then, of course, there were even more meetings because the stuff that used to get dealt with kind of serendipitously in the hallway suddenly had to be a Zoom call as well. And so bottom line is, if people are in meetings more than, you know, four hours a day, and I'm kind of pulling that a little randomly, but I mean, think about it. If you're in, if you're on Zoom calls more than four or five hours a day, there really is no time to get other work done. It's exhausting. There's no time for email. You're probably not making the best use of, of those four or five hours of Zoom calls either, frankly. Like that's, that's just a lot more focused, exhausting interaction than most people are, are capable of in the context of video. And so, you know, the one question I think that needs to be normalized in every organization is, you know, does this need to be a meeting? And even in a way before that, it's just get away from from the idea that a meeting is a default and start with the assumption that everything is going to be handled asynchronously. Our normal way of working is to exchange documents, exchange Slack messages, exchange Teams messages, exchange emails. And if we need a meeting, it's for a very specific reason. And we kind of have a list of reasons in our heads and even better yet in some kind of shared documentation of what actually warrants a meeting. So Matt Vollenweg of uh, Automatic, of course, has famously talked about the shift to asynchronous and that's that's the, the Nirvana organization. But beyond that, I suppose, I think that's almost the first step is to say, all right, well, okay, let's, let's not just do back-to-back meetings. That's probably a good start and give people some space in between the meetings. But what are any specific ways you can give blocks of time for focus or to share information load by allocating that amongst different team members? What are any, I suppose, more specific things we can do to beyond asynchronous to to make this work for individuals? Well, I mean, the knowledge sharing you allude to is is definitely table stakes. And 
if I describe a need for an internal wiki, I guess I'm dating myself. It's not what we call these things anymore. But every organization that has a significant volume of remote employees or where a large number of employees spend a lot of their time communicating online, which is at this point most most organizations that are in you know service and, and even a lot of product businesses, any organization like that really needs to start from a question of how do we create information flows that are indexable and searchable? I mean, it shouldn't have to be that everything you know goes into a wiki and you have to figure out where it belongs and you have to make sure your document is in the right part of the share drive. I mean, all of that is great. But, you know, most people aren't librarians and, you know, there can be sincere disagreements even between good librarians. And so a system of knowledge sharing that depends, A, on everybody putting their stuff in the right place with the right keywords and then also depends on people going and looking for the right stuff with the right keywords is is pretty fragile. It's it's a lot more realistic to you know think about tools like like group messaging like Teams and Slack where just by adding a hashtag or even actually just by exchanging your message on a public channel as opposed to a direct message you create you know indexable information that becomes available to the rest of the team in perpetuity. And I mean, you know, I will say one of the things that's been really transformational in my own productivity in the past few years, I've I've had, I've been very fortunate to have a long running working relationship with a company called Sprinkler and, and, and to be part of their internal um, Slack channels. And at a certain point, I was several years into my working relationship when somebody on the team I was working with pointed out that the question I just asked her, she didn't know the answer to, but I could probably find an answer to in, in the, a particular channel that I was then added to. Well, you know, that has become my go-to source for all kinds of questions that come up in the course of my work with them. And, you know, I think that's a pretty typical and realistic scenario for how people can find information. If other people have asked the question in the past, you shouldn't need to ask it. You should be able to go and find where where it's already been asked. And, you know, you have to get up pretty early in the morning to ask a question that other people haven't asked if you're working in a large organization. So I'd like to switch gears a bit, but even in fact, we can still incorporate the organizational themes to your practices. So you are, amongst other things, an expert, a researcher, an author, you have a lot of information. You're working with your clients, which gives you even more information. So I'd like to get a sense, you know, perhaps to dig in saying, how do you take that overwhelming amount of information to be able to be effective in your role? What's the starting point for you? I think there's a couple of things. First of all, <laughs> when I was, I guess, 11, God help me, my mother literally bribed me to take typing in, a, in an adult secretarial school, I sat and cried every single day as I sat at my typewriter. But she was right. By the age of 12, I was a fluent typist. So I've been typing for, you know, almost 40 years now. And it's it sounds like a trivial thing, but I'm amazed when I when I I'm a faster typist than almost anybody I know. And it is actually a transformational. I've, I can't believe I've used that word twice. Uh, practice, because if you if you type as quickly as you think, and to be honest, I think pretty quickly as well, then it becomes possible to capture everything. And actually, the other part of that is I'm like an incorrigible voice reminder dictator and my whole family, everybody I know makes fun of me because I'll be like walking down the street. I'll be like, uh, remind me 
to order gum today at 7 p.m. Or I'll like, or I'll, you know, somebody will say something. I'll say, oh, just a second. Remind me to talk to Ross about why information overload is a problem for so many people. And I run my whole life actually off of reminders now. And what's really effective about that is it feeds thoughts and information back to me at a moment when it's actionable. And if it isn't, as it turns out, actionable, if at seven o'clock I'm actually in the middle of eating dinner, I have a whole kind of cascade of snoozing features and places to send things so that, you know, it might bounce back to me for a couple of, of goes before I can put it somewhere to find it again. But eventually that idea goes into my list of ideas to think about turning into stories, or that idea goes into the structured sort of document slash spreadsheet where I keep, you know, information related to data journalism. And so, you know, I have a number of of repositories that I have maintained in different forms for a number of years. I've been an Evernote user for 15 years now, I realize. And Almost all my random stuff goes in Evernote. I've been a religious user of a platform called Coda for about three years, which is kind of a hybrid. I, I like to describe it as Google Google Docs on steroids. It kind of lets you combine spreadsheet functionality and document functionality into essentially build your own apps. And I have built Coda documents around every single major aspect of my life, some of them in incredible depth. And that means that even though I am in 18 different directions and working in many different organizations and contexts, there is a home base for each aspect of my life. I'd like to dig in in a moment as to how you use Evernote in particular, but are these skills we should be teaching individuals? Should we be teaching people how to use Coder or giving them some templates or to saying, choose Evernote or whatever note-taking systems and here's some ways to tag or structure that? Are these some foundational skills that people haven't been taught? Well, yeah, I mean, 100%. And, you know, it's it's embarrassing what happens in my household. My 19-year-old has not only taken to using Coda, but has become a Coda evangelist and knows that, like, the surest way to curry favor with mom is to, like, come home from their day at art school and explain how they've gotten a whole bunch of art students to start using Coda today to plan their projects. And my, my 16-year-old, bless his heart, last year got really tired with the repetitiveness of his math assignments and just built a series of calculators in CODA to do his math homework for him. And, you know, every time I see them do something like this, I think, like, who the heck knows? Like, is he ever going to use grade 10 math in real life? Maybe, maybe not. Is he going to use the ability to build his own little DIY work tools in an online platform? Absolutely. And so (laughs) there are a lot of aspects of my parenting I would not necessarily recommend to the general public. But my kids are amazingly adept at using these different tools. And it's because they've grown up in a household where, like, that's just how we do. We have, like, 14 different platforms we routinely use as a family. You know, you know, like, you do not want mom to catch you using a table when you should be using a spreadsheet. That is, like, bad news. And I wish schools spent more time. You know, it's one of the things that made me super upset about the whole transition in, in, in Google Suite is, you know... I actually, I I have a huge problem with the corporatization of education, and and it is disturbing to see schools relying on a commercial platform. But also, if kids use Google, 
in their school and they're using Google Sheets or using Google Docs, they're getting used to the platform they're going to use as adults in the working world. And Mm -hmm. I think that having kids learn how to use digital tools in these playgrounds that are designed for, you know, K to 12 environments and then have to go and learn a totally unrelated tool set doesn't make any sense. Like, let's get schools and kids running on the kinds of tools that adults use or should use. But I suppose there's not that many adults that are familiar with Coda. So if you put it in a corporate environment... (laughs) then there's a lot of people struggling with saying, oh, they've got paper or they've got Google Docs or they've got all sorts of things. And no one has ever given them any, you know, I suppose, guidance as to saying, well, this is how you can organize or structure your life beyond, you know, whatever we throw at you. That's absolutely true. And, and you know, some of that can be addressed by organizations being really explicit about tool choice, providing examples, providing resources, providing training, supporting people with templates and getting started guides and all of that. And and all of that would help. But I also have to remind myself that not everybody's idea of a fun Friday night is let's try seven different task management apps and make notes on which ones have which features. Like that is my idea of a rip-roaring good time. But most people do not enjoy like messing around with software as much as I do. The world is apparently full of people who don't like spreadsheets. Also, I've learned that. I mean, I love, I I can't even begin to describe how much I love, I love, like love, like I feel my brain is a spreadsheet. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me, actually, I, I have, my younger kid is autistic. And so I periodically connect with other moms of autistic kids. You would not believe how many autism, like moms, moms I've met in the autistic community are also big Excel nerds. Like there is possibly a genetic component here. Yep. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying everybody needs to fall in love with spreadsheets, but I think that, I think that if people can find tools that are genuinely a joy for them to use, you don't have to use 482 different things the way somebody like me does. But, you know, if you think about how much time you spend holding your phone or at your computer, if you're not working in an environment that gives you joy, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a slog. And so, you know, you want to encourage people to take ownership of their tools as part of taking ownership of their work. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So this, this goes to knowledge frameworks, which I describe as concept frameworks or you know, sometimes visualizations. And so, and so you're using Evernote and Coder, it sounds like, for that. So can you, I suppose, from this frame of developing knowledge, as in build, you know, finding things and building the connections between those, you know, is that something you do? Or, or if so, how would you, how do you use your tools or even your, just your, your cognition as ways to develop your knowledge as you, uh, you know, encounter new ideas and information and concepts? Well, I mean, definitely... I guess it's interesting. I I don't think about either Evernote and Coda as knowledge as much as as ideas. 
I keep a lot of web clippings in Evernote. So that that happens. And I do often find things in Evernote, you know, that I saved seven years ago or whatever that are still useful. I think that, you know, from a, from a knowledge and ideas point of view, what's actually probably more relevant is I'm a, I'm a Zotero user. I used to be a Oh my gosh. And EndNote user 100,000 years ago. I mean, I'm a huge fan of people choosing a bit. If you, if you do knowledge work, really, if, if you do reading of any sort using a bibliographic software program, Zotero is probably the one to beat now because it's open source and has a really big user base, is it's pretty powerful because if once you get into taking all your notes um, on your reading, you save your reading sources in one place, that's where you highlight you know, articles as you read them. You can extract those highlights and export them to other programs. One of the most popular pieces I've ever written, at least in terms of like the passion of the people who find it and write me about it. Um, I wrote this piece for JSTOR Daily a few years ago about how I use Zotero and Scrivener together. Scrivener is a writing program that, you know, if you do long form writing, although, you know, I even use it to write my newsletters and my and my uh, articles now because it's just so much easier in a lot of ways than using a word processor. Not easier to learn, but more powerful and, and faster once you learn it. And I use them together because I, you know, I'll read, I'll save an article to Zotero, annotate the PDF in Zotero, use a tool called Zotfile, which is an add-on to Zotero to extract all the annotations and turn it into ultimately a Word document. And then I import the Word document into Scrivener so that each annotated section appears in Scrivener as like a little mini document within Scrivener. And then I just rearrange all those quotes until I figure the pieces I want to use in my article and bam, I'm almost at a first draft. It's a little more fidgety than that. But that's that's been really significant for me. I think I think the the knowledge management piece is really it's funny. I it, it's very therapeutic because I always feel embarrassed that I'm such a pack rat and I'm from like I'm a pack rat from a long line of pack rats, you know, when my grandmother died, we had like her great grandfather's like clippings books still around and you know, one of the lessons I learned from that is if you keep it for your lifetime, you're a pack rat. If the next two generations keep it, then it's like an heirloom. So you just have to keep it long enough. And I I mean, I have every essay I wrote in college in a cupboard upstairs printed out on dot matrix printer paper in little duotangs, and I still refer to them sometimes. I can open any file I created within the last 20 years, maybe a little longer, and not just open it. I can find it. I have a heck of a huge, I have a 32 terabyte file server in the house, mm. which is big enough to actually have room left over. And of course, I have most of my stuff stored in the cloud. I'm constantly opening documents from 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 14 years ago, repurposing a little bit of this or that. And, uh, you know, just that that ability to not re not replicate things I've already done is so powerful. Do you use any tagging system or any structure to Evernote's, which uh, sort of an overarching taxonomy or anything? I have notebooks within Evernote. And when I was first an Evernote user, I was extremely religious about tagging and about notebooks. And it's been years since I even really bothered to use notebooks. I just, it's all just a big pile because, um, 
search is so effective in Evernote. Uh, maybe it's it's not perfect. It can be a little messy. Um, the only thing I do that is really religious is uh, years ago, my husband, this is, <laughs> this is one of these practices that actually no longer fully makes sense because computers have evolved. But back in the day when, when things didn't necessarily have reliable date stamps, he got me into the habit of starting every file with the date in the format year, month, day. So today would be, you know, 2022-12-6. And I actually have a keyboard shortcut um, in, in my computer and on my phone that, like, give me, I can quickly add that at the beginning of any file. And it's now it's just automatic that I every time I'm starting opening a file or starting an Evernote node, I hit that keystroke combo and it starts with the date. And, you know, yes, in theory, date created, date last modified, whatever should always be visible within a file. But I'm telling you, man, like every time I move computers, all the date stamps get screwed up. So, you know, that ability and and when you have it in that format, year, month, day, it means you can always sort by file name and then it ends up in date order. File order yes. is date order. And, you know, that has saved my bacon many, many a time. Awesome. So let's go into inputs. So you get lots of new information to come into your consciousness every day. Uh, so I'd love to just hear about, are there any specific, uh, regular sources you use? Do you have uh, any feeds? Do you, how do you sort of look out and discover the edges of the world? What are your, what are your habits or routines or practices in terms of getting the information in that, that feeds your ability to do what you do? You know, it's it's funny. I, I often joke that my husband's the input device and I'm the output device. We we have worked very closely together at, at various points in our career. We ran a business together. And I have also had periods of my life where I did have like a very structured, you know, daily news scan. You know, I had an RSS aggregate. I've gone through various things over the years, you know, Feedly and so on to use RSS aggregation to bring you know, keyword searches to me. And I do have, you know, a standing Google News search for stuff related to remote work. And I have, um, I use an email program called Superhuman. And within it, I've sort of set up a category for regular news and a category for remote news. And so my newsletters all go into the regular news folder and my Google News search and a handful of newsletters I subscribe to on remote work go into the remote work uh, the remote news folder. But I hardly ever look at, I really don't look at those, either of them very consistently. Partly, and, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to deal with this. I would say for me, the biggest problem with information overload is less cognitive and more emotional and psychological. And part of that has to do with, for me, transitioning the field that I work in. I mean, I've had a really weird career in a lot of ways. I've always been interested in stuff too soon, basically. <laughs> You know, I, I wrote, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I got interested in doing a dissertation on, I was in a political science PhD program in, in the in mid-90s, and I decided in 1996 that I wanted to do a dissertation on the political impact of the internet, and my department thought I was like bananas. I ended up doing a, taking a few years off, doing, coming back and doing a dissertation on hacktivism in 2001, I guess, is when I started that. I finished in 2004. It was before Anonymous, before, like, it was crazy early, right? And 
Then I got interested in what we now called call social media before it was called social media. And I, I think my husband and I literally started the first social media agency in the world because we hung out our shingle in 2005 and said, we're only going to do Web 2.0 projects. So, you know, I've had this career where I've been unprofitably ahead of the curve and where usually what I'm working on and writing about, other people aren't working on and writing about. I, you know, when I started writing about the sort of personal psychological impact of using the internet, the only other people who were even talking about this at all were in the evangelical community. And I I followed a handful of people who were, you know, trying to think about like, how do you sp- tweet in the spirit of Jesus, that kind of stuff, long before all the Buddhisty mindful text started, started happening. And so working as I have in the past, you know, two or three years, taking my long experience of remote work, my long experience of helping organizations figure out how to build community online, taking my experience of helping people with information overload, with productivity, and and turning that into, you know, a book about remote work and and a pretty active career writing and, and speaking on remote work has been really disconcerting for me because I'm suddenly in a conversation that hundreds and thousands of people are talking about. And so, you know, when I was writing about hacktivism, well, there was no Google News search yet, but when I was writing about social media and digital overload initially, I would, you know, I had searches set up on digital fasts and overload and some of these keywords, and there'd be some stuff, but it wasn't like like a colossal waterfall of other people writing about the same topics. Now, if I do my, you know, look at my Google News search for stuff on remote work and hybrid, I'm like, way too neurotic. And it's like, oh my God, these are like 45 great articles and I didn't write any of them. And like, I suck. They're great. I need to go crawl into a hole and die. I don't know. Like maybe everybody, maybe a lot of people are like that. Maybe that's part of what what makes information overload so difficult. I just think like as humans, we are the first generation to be continually immersed in what everybody else is doing that we're not. And, you know, it's pretty tough, like, to live in the constant stew of the, your own opportunity costs. Yeah, well, the, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, it is an emotion, you know, well, our cognition, as human cognition is not really geared for this particular environment. But, I mean, a lot, big part of that is emotional in the sense that we feel that we're missing out. We want to try to keep up. It's impossible to keep up. And this leads to not good emotions. So part of the, well, the trick is probably not the right word, but, you know, the response is, you know, how, how do we shift our responses? And some of those are processes or structures, and some of those is really adjusting our attitudes. And, you know, I, I talk about this idea of, you know, we have to be able to let go. And that's not an easy thing for us to do. <laughs> no, and I think, you know, my my thinking and understanding on on these challenges has been so profoundly influenced by my, you know, journey with my kid who who was diagnosed with autism pretty late. So we spent a lot of time reading a lot, a lot of stuff about, you know, ADHD and other kinds of sensory uh, disorders, as they're sometimes called. I've read a lot about autism, spent a lot of time paying attention to people in the neurodiversity community who make often make a very effective case for all the you know, talents and gifts that can come from from having a different way of approaching the world. And it's made me very aware of how how we fall into a lot of errors of assumption around um, what we're supposed to be able to handle cognitively, you know, at a sensory level, at an emotional level. 
And again, the mismatch between what comes at us and what we're wired to handle. And I think, you know, a lot of the tools that have helped me learn to deal with that in my professional life have really come from my personal life. And, you know, to, to just give an example, we we went through a very, very difficult time in, in the middle of COVID, like either there was a survey actually here in, in British Columbia where I live of families with autistic kids and literally every single family in the province that was surveyed said, we are in crisis because of COVID because there was such a loss of you know community supports and schedule and routine and a lot of things people rely on. And that was certainly the case in our, our household. And we went through a really difficult time and I you know, had a pretty established repertoire of resources to work with, and I needed more. And so I started working with a hypnosis, a therapist who specialized in hypnosis, and then later with another therapist who described herself as a somatic therapist to develop, like, essentially some very physiological practices for self-regulation, right? Just starting to notice what happens in the body when you, because I was, what had happened to me was we had such a, a series of crises that I was kind of in permanent fight or flight mode. And I had to learn how to turn that down. And like having tuned into that at a physiological level and learn to notice like, oh, like I'm feeling tightness in my chest. I feel my forehead is, you know, tight. Like I can feel what's happening in my eyelids as I'm having that response. And then learning like very simple techniques. Like I'm going to real, I'm going to pick an object in the room and I'm going to really focus on it. And I'm going to look at like the color, the texture. I'm really going to bring, turn on my sensory experience to pull my brain out of that panic mode. I mean, that feeling I have when I open my inbox, that that same routine now comes into play. I'm, and it's not necessarily conscious. I don't like think, oh, no, I'm panicking over my inbox. But it's now become second nature to notice the physiological response so that instead of identifying with panic, I, I can sort of observe it a little bit and not let it drive me. That, that sounds like a, a fantastic tool. I think you know, attention... Generally, and just meta attention, our ability to control our attention, I think, is is fundamental. But I think you know those specific techniques sound really powerful. So to to round out, what are any recommendations you would give from your obviously deep insight and expertise as to how uh, listeners can thrive on overload to function well in this world, which is uh, which is very overwhelming, to be frank. <laughs> I'm just reflecting that I'm sort of like, well, is the solution a spreadsheet or a Buddhist retreat? <laughs> I can't decide. You know, I honestly do think that you need to look at at both at both sides of the coin. There's a lot of advice out there about, you know, decide what you want, be really clear on your intentions, you'll manifest, blah, blah, blah. I actually have, have kind of moved away and come to find it's much easier to like learn to float on the river and accept that the complexity and pace of our world is actually almost almost too much to be able to set really firm intentions and and so if instead of thinking like this is the thing I'm going to go for and I'm going to have this like super linear way of going about it if instead you think about building a toolkit that allows you to float on the river and seize the opportunities that come your way then you realize what you need is really is, as I say, both sides of the coin. You need to build 
the technical tools that let you filter, triage what comes in, rediscover the resources you need to reuse, organize your writing and your own work effectively. And you need to recognize that technology is not going to solve that feeling of overwhelm that I think is honestly intrinsic to being a human being in an era where the world comes at us faster than we are wired for. And if you try to solve it all with meditation, you are going to miss your spreadsheet. (laughs) And if you try to solve it all with spreadsheets, you know, you're probably not going to heal your existential angst. So a combination of technology and mindfulness. Something like that. That's a fantastic uh, way to round out. I think it's a a true and hopefully pragmatic advice there. Thank you so much for your time, Alexander. That's been a really wonderful, really insightful conversation. It's fun talking with you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.